Hello and welcome to Getting Goosebumps, the weekly podcast exploring the business of storytelling, where I interview many of the world's greatest marketers and storytellers to share their insights and ideas of how to put emotion into marketing. This week I had an extremely enjoyable conversation with Natalie Nehai. Natalie is an award-winning best-selling author of the book Webs of Influence, The Psychology of Online Persuasion. But she's also a science geek, an academic, and a leading expert in online psychology and persuasion. Natalie helps businesses apply scientific rigor to their design and decision-making process to help achieve better online engagement. And this week we discuss why we behave the way we do online, we discuss the sins of deceiving people into action, and also how to pack an emotional punch to make the quickest and best first impression. Okay, Natalie, uh, thanks so much for uh, joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Brilliant. I've been really looking forward to this. Um, and I think uh, some of the listeners would be really intrigued to hear your, your take on what you offer in terms of, uh, well, web psychology. Can I start by asking you, just what is a web psychologist and what, what do you do on a, on a daily basis? So um, I came up with the term web psychology in 2011 because I was finding it very frustrating looking at all these disparate areas of study, each of which give us various insights on how and why we behave the way that we do online. So, for example, um, you can get insights from cultural psychology, from personality psychology, from human-computer interaction, from behavioral economics, from neuroaesthetics. Uh, <laughs> but there wasn't a single sort of umbrella term that, in my mind, brought all of these things together and then shared more of a sort of uh, a territory or a, or a map to the territory of, of online behavior. And so that's why I came up with this broader term, web psychology, uh, and then wrote the book on um, on how to use these different elements to design more persuasive user experiences, websites, marketing, how to, to use these practices within conversion rate optimization. Um, and the idea really is to apply these these principles in a way that we're extracting them from empirically sound evidence-based research mm -hmm. and then using them in an ethical way. So looking at how we can use them for the mutual benefit of the customer as well as the business owner. Okay. So, so the motivation for writing this book was, because obviously your, your background is quite interesting, isn't it? You know, you're in the digital space and um, you've got a psych psychology background. So was that literally um, a frustration that it wasn't being applied in this space, would you say? Yeah. I mean, I think what I was finding was that a lot of the insights that I was exploring um, in the writing of the book and even prior to that in the research phase, um, a lot of the academic research that I was looking at was pretty much locked away behind closed doors. So either a lot of this publicly funded research wasn't being made accessible to the public because it was um, in publications that you have to pay a huge amount of money to access yeah. or the research was being done by private companies um, that, that then would hold this information close to their chest because obviously they want to have competitive advantage. So my sort of take on things, uh, both my parents are teachers, is that you, there's only one reason to have knowledge and that's if you're going to use it for good and if you're going to share it with others so that we can all raise the bar and, and benefit. Um, and that wasn't happening. That wasn't happening with the research that was being done. And so I wanted to address that problem and make it available to people and give people the primary um, 
the, the references that enable them to get the primary research, they can go away and read it because people are smart. And if you get a lot of these sort of gurus dumbing things down, giving you like the five secrets to success, <laughs> then that success is going to be very short lived. Uh, and, and that also frustrated me. So I was trying to kind of bring out the best of, of all those worlds in a sense. Well, so that, that was some mission then. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, and, you, and you started this. Um, obviously, the book came out in 2012, late 2012. Yeah, yeah we're currently undergoing an, an editing process to kind of create the new edition. Which oh, is really? Oh, great. When does that come out? <laughs> well, we've got to get feedback from the first, and it's quite a laborious process. Yeah. So uh, it probably won't be out for at least another year. But, um, oh, yeah, right. it's, it's doing well. So they wanted to do it again. Anyway, sorry, carry on. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, it, no, it, it is interesting, though, because uh, it, it's quite topical now, people talking about online behavior. But obviously, you've been talking about this um, for, for quite, quite some time. And I think you're right in terms of it can't be dumbed down too much. Mm. However, if, if, if um, you were to explain it sort of quickly, the, the sort of main advantages to a general audience, how, how do you sum it up, if, if that's possible? Mm. Well, in terms of summing up, I guess summing up web psychology, I kind of define it as the empirical study of how online environments influence our attitudes and behaviors. And all that basically means is how we're influenced online. So yeah. that could be through websites, it could be through apps, it could be the way that your um, your mail client influences you to keep checking your, your email, it could be through products, through wearable technology, I mean, a lot has changed in the last three years. So it's basically anything that uses behavioral principles or psychological principles to get you to do stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and so these are typically known of, as, as nudges uh, or as information architecture. So when you design a web page, the way in which you lay it out and the, the calls to actions that you have will change the way in which people interact with the page. But then from the other perspective of the context of the customer, of the person who's doing the reading or the interacting, their personal psychological context will also change the way in which they interact with the page. So something like their personality traits, their culture, um, all of these different things create these layers of context that will influence their behavior. So that's it from kind of like in a nutshell to a slightly more nuanced expression of what it is. No, brilliant. That's great. And you mentioned um, CRO um, earlier mm. and the likes of split testing and that kind of stuff but you know from from my research and obviously our agency uh, does that type of work as well it, it's quite technology focused and also it treats an audience as uh, a statistic or just analytical data i mean do you get on with these guys or do you compliment them well um what you know what's what's your sort of take on that because it feels like the one big thing that people don't you know, people neglect is is the person at the other end Mm. Well, it's funny, isn't it? Because we talk we talk about people as users, and mm. we're all users. And this is the this is the crucial distinction that everyone forgets. Um, is actually a it's kind of it's a delusion. It's not actually a distinction between you and the person designing and the, the end user, so to speak. We all use technology. We're all the end users. And so when we're designing these experiences, when we're talking about people as data points, and we're using their data to create more engaging experiences or whatever it might be. We are also someone else's data point. So the question in my mind, you know, I get on very well with people in the conversion rate optimization space because they're, many of them are my peers. I'm kind of a bit of a geek myself. Um, I know I don't fit possibly the typical mold, but, you know, these are my people. Um, it's kind of my tribe. So, so I think what's really interesting in that space is that, yes, of course, people are looking at data, but there's humanity within that data. And I think it's about framing it in such a way that it becomes enriched by our looking at people 
as people within a longer term experience. So looking at the longer term relationship that you might form with people, looking at their context. And actually, you'll find that when you put people within their context and you start thinking about people, not just as um, data points within a larger set of data, that you can get much richer insights as to how and why they behave the way they do. And it, it makes for much more effective um, and more sustainable CRO because you're not just going for the quick wins. Yeah, I, I, I still can see an argument for how you, you'd annoy some uh, CRO people and showing them up with, with your approach. Um, but I like, oh, the, no. I like the fact well, I think that you it integrates. <laughs> it, it should integrate with the approach as opposed to shop. I, mean, I think there's, there's so much powerful stuff that you can do with data. And, you know, my approach, I'm, I'm less on the data analytics side. These are people who kind of either validate or mm-hmm. invalidate the hypothesis. So it's absolutely crucial. But all of these things are connected and you need to have the entire picture to be able to get the real meaning. Yeah. If you're just looking at one piece of the picture, you're only going to get one set of information, which is not going to give you um, as good a results as if you get the whole picture. And that's the same for any kind of industry or approach. Um, yeah. yeah. One, <laughs> one, um, one story that you tell in your book, which I think is, is really interesting, something I'm particularly interested in, is the idea that uh, we use both emotional and rational levers and um, and, and content to really um, effectively connect with an audience. And one story that you tell is the uh, the Kiva microloans uh, example. Ah, yeah. Can you just quickly run through that to illustrate the power of this? Because I just thought that was a really good story. So the Kiva microloans, um, I don't know what their website looks like now, but um, at the time of writing, and actually I think since they went through a different design change and then they reverted back to the original, um, at the time of writing, they basically had set up a website that encourages customers to give microloans to people around the world who are starting up their businesses. So it could be, for instance, a woman in Mali who wants to set up, um, I don't know, maybe a school or maybe she wants to set up a clothing um, cottage industry for um, for women in her community. The point is that you get offered a whole range of faces and people's stories to choose from. So you're likely to scan this page for faces because that's what we do in our natural environments. Mm-hmm. And then you'll pick the person who either has an expression that you find pleasing or relates to you in some personal way. So for instance, I've spent a lot of time in South America, so it might be someone from that region where I've got a positive association. And then you look at their story, you read the synopsis, and if you feel moved to give, then you can. And all along the page, there's there's different cues and levers for encouraging you to make the commitment to invest. So this might be something like 98% of loans repaid um, to date. And that's an indication of certainty. So we don't like a sense of uncertainty. So if they're giving you a 98% success rate, you're more likely to engage. Or if they say, Um, 56,000 people have um, invested this month alone, then that's a sense of social proof. Lots of other people are doing it. It must be a good idea. Therefore, I'll do it too. Um, So those are some of the, some of the levers, if you like, that are being pulled in that specific instance. Mm, It's, I bet there's people listening to this now just thinking, wow, there's so much to this and (laughs) oh my God, I'm not doing any of it at all. Um, So if you had to give some advice to people listening to this, perhaps running their own business or responsible for a website um, you know, that's getting lots of traffic, what are the sort of basic elements you would consider or recommend starting with to make some marginal gains or improvements? Oh, that's a good question. Um, okay, so something that I think is an interesting place to start is around um, qualitative research. And this is something that's super easy to do. So mm-hmm. typically... We like to, if you're looking to get 
get more engaged, more deeply engaged, emotionally engaged with existing customers and or new customers. Um, one of the key ways to do this is to reflect their motivations, align yourself with their goals or attract customers whose goals are aligned with yours, and then reflect this in the language that you use. So a super easy way to research this cheaply and quickly is to, um, uh, well, there's two ways really that you can try. One is to have um, a bit of research where you send out a questionnaire, it could be some kind of um, survey on the site where you say there's a competition, you can win 15% off or whatever by taking the survey. And then you ask them some open-ended questions around your brand. And then the kind of uh, words that they use will then inform um, things like their sentiment around your brand, the motivations. So for instance, there's some research that found that people who have um, who rate highly in the traits for extroversion will use specific words like um, excitement and novelty and adventure. Um, so if you start mapping out the responses that you get and you can see through even something as simple as a tag cloud just to give you a basic idea, you can see that there are certain words that are being used a lot, then you know that in your marketing messages, these are the words that are going to attract more of the same kinds of people, more of your existing clients. Um, and so that's something you can do very, very easily to then you know, write more persuasive copy, decide what kind of content to use, what kind of images to use, etc. So that's something that I would say is, is straightforward because all good um, CROs starts with research of your audience yeah. and that's a nice way to start. Yeah, fabulous. I can see it. It's something that can actually become quite addictive once you start, you know, finding out about your audience. But as, a, as beginners, um, does it come with any health warning? Is there any risks or are you firmly on the side of have a go as long as it is based on sort of data that you've you've collected. Oh, that's a good question. I th mm. <laughs> good question. Um, <laughs> well, there are there are risks to doing this. I think in the sense that, well, ethics is always a, a big issue. I think when we talk about influence, we also have to talk about manipulation and what is and what isn't ethical. So, for instance, the use of dark patterns. Harry Brignall's written a fantastic website um, on this subject, and I think he's writing a book about it. Uh, and basically, the idea that if you use behavioral science practice, practices or principles to um, coerce people into taking certain decisions. So, for instance, a great example that I found recently on the Times website, you can subscribe to get, um, I think it's like a 30-day trial for mm -hmm. a pound or something like this. Yep. And basically, I looked through all the T's and C's and I had to, I had to wade six or seven pages in. Um, to find their cancellation clause. And this is insane. Like, you know, you're the Times, you're respected, you have this wonderful reputation. Don't start tarnishing it by making it really hard and really punitive um, for people who want to cancel. So there are ways in which you can use behavioral practices to facilitate certain actions. And then there are ways that you can use them to undermine people's goals when they're in conflict with your own. And I think the crucial point here is, you know, not to do to other people what you wouldn't like to have done to you. So if you think, okay, well, would my mom, my brother, my sister, my girlfriend, my boyfriend, would I be happy if someone was doing this to them? If the answer is no, then you shouldn't be doing it, just as a rule of thumb. Mm, it's interesting, isn't it? Influence and, and coercion. And um, you're going to have to briefly sum up what a dark pattern is, Natalie. You've got me there. I'm really intrigued. All right, well, let me make sure that I get the right definition because Harry Brignall's example is great. So I'm just going to Google it. Um, essentially, <laughs> okay. it's about manipulating people through the use of behavioral um, uh, manipulation and patterns that are used to coerce. But I will give you the specific quote. Um, <laughs> right, let me just have a little look. Um, and then you guys can check this out because his work yeah. is really, really interesting. So it's darkpatterns.org and it's about user interfaces that are designed to trick people. 
So he defines a dark pattern as a user interface that's been carefully crafted to trick users into doing things such as buying insurance with their purchase or signing up for recurring bills. Um, so that's kind of, that's the way in which he defines it. So deceiving people into actions that they otherwise might not take willingly or, co yeah. or uh, overtly, I should say. Wow, well, there you go. That is a dark mm. pattern as live Googled by next week. So thanks, thanks <laughs> It's always good that. to be accurate. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I was going to, I was actually going to ask you a question. Can it, can it be taken too far? But I think you, you've answered that um, mm. really, really nicely. Now back on the side of uh, the, the ethical approach, one thing that, that I passionately believe um, is really important to a brand these days is um, the ability to tell stories and I think yeah. it's one of the most effective ways of, of communication but um, there's also the argument that um, our um, our ability to listen and take in information is diminishing and you've got our attention for like 12 seconds online now apparently um, mm. so, so there seems to be a bit of a conflict there because how do you tell a story in, in 12 seconds I mean to, to make an impact as soon, as, as quick as possible, what, what's your sort of best insights and best advice there? Hmm. Well, I think in terms of making the quickest first impression, you really have one main choice, which is that you have to pack a punch visually. Mm -hmm. um, so Facebook, for instance, do this with autoplay videos with the sound off. Of course, motion is going to attract peripheral vision. Mm -hmm. And if it's compelling enough visually, then we'll want to find out more. So there's a sense of, of novelty, of curiosity. The mind doesn't like... Um, unclosed loops so mm -hmm. this idea of, sort of the gestalt approach of wanting yeah. to be able to understand something in its entirety so if there's a problem left unsolved the mind really wants to figure out what the solution is mm -hmm. so if you can do that visually through um, a mysterious or compelling image which is evocative that's maybe expressing some emotion or something that might be disgusting or exciting or surprising <laughs> or through a video that creates something which is going to be intriguing um, and that's obviously very matched to the kind of content or context that the person is expecting, then that's going to be your best bet in terms of grabbing attention within those crucial first few seconds yeah. and then encouraging people to delve deeper. That's, that's some great advice. And, you know, I'd never thought of the, um, the, the Facebook autoplay video without the sound <laughs> in that way. Um, but that makes so much sense. That, that's, that's, that's fantastic. In terms of the open loops, I think one of the best persons on the planet – that, that does that tells stories with open loops is actually Billy Connolly. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, because he, he starts telling you a story and then he goes off on a tangent and starts another one and another one and another one and another one. And then towards the end, he will tie off all of these stories and somehow magically come back to the beginning and give you the punchline for the original joke, which I think is hysterical and very mm. clever. And from mm. a, a psychological point of view, I'm sure you'll analyze that and dive much deeper into that than me. But um, one thing I'm, I'm also interested, Natalie, I'd be interested to see uh, what, what you think, is um, ultimately online, um, marketers are professional communicators, and that's how we ultimately make our money. Who, who else, what other professional people out there are doing a great job with, with great communication? Does any other sort of profession spring to mind that are doing it better than us? Um, well, there is kind of this whole um, maker industry. I don't know if it's a specific profession because it comprises many different areas. But so, for instance, um, I've seen quite a few of my, my, my peers start off with uh, studios where they create, for instance, the Craftivist Collective. I'll give that as an example. Sarah Corbett, who runs the Craftivist Collective, who uses really compelling real-life offline experiences photographed beautifully 
to create and transmit a very real, very warm, very genuine voice online that is inherently compelling to a certain group of people because because it's real, because it's genuine, because it's got that sense of story and it feels real. Um, and I think that whilst the marketers and those of us in the industry who are trying to kind of advertise to people in a more friendly and emotional way, uh, whilst we're trying to develop techniques for this sort of stuff, um, there are many people who do it naturally, mostly because they're doing something out of their own passion yeah. or they're communicating about something around which there are very strong values um, that then attracts people who have similar values. They're creating natural relationships and tribes. Okay. So I think in terms of looking at different industries, that's a really interesting place to start kind of exploring yeah. uh, to see how people are doing it naturally already. Yeah, and I, I guess sort of unpicking that a little bit, um, we're sort of scratching the surface of, of just basic authenticity, right? Yeah, I mean, people, <laughs> it's one of my pet peeves, this word authenticity. Oh. So basically, yeah, so basically there are two modes of being. You're either going to be real or you're going to lie. <laughs> and companies now going, mm, I think it's time to be real and not yeah. to lie. So this idea of being authentic, and it doesn't mean revealing everything about yourself, but it does mean having a bit of personality and not hiding behind layers of, yeah. I don't know, of kind of, brand guidelines and yeah. uh, personas that you've kind of smushed together. I think people are becoming, well, there's sort of two trends, I suppose. One is we're becoming increasingly narcissistic and worried about how we present to the world. And the buck trend, which is two, the other side of that, is that we're seeking that real, if you like, authentic connection because yeah. it's something that we experience as being missing. Um, and so, yeah, so authenticity, being real, connecting with people at an actual emotional level um, making sure it's a, a kind of a collaborative conversation as opposed to a broadcasting that we've seen for the last however many hundreds of years. Yeah. All of that is important. It's kind of a trend that we're seeing because I think there is a sense of feeling maybe perhaps a bit let down and disconnected by our technology um, and, yeah, and frustrated with the status quo. Yeah, absolutely. And one, one of my bugbears is the fact that um, a lot of storytelling, which bizarrely still does very, very well online, uh, seem mm. to be synthetic stories manufactured by a marketing department. Um, and it might be stunts and just uh, brands that do lovely things for their customers, but just happen to have a full camera crew there and capture it all and, and all the rest of it. Um, but then you have um, stories um, that are real um, stories from, from brands that you know, the staff have done something wonderful from a customer service point of view and that kind of thing. So I'm starting to think that mark, great marketing uh, actually starts in the HR department, not the marketing department. So when you say it starts in the HR department, do you mean that it's basically by hiring people who are going to perhaps maybe contribute to a culture that's going to, to, to encourage people to be themselves and then that's going to shine out throughout the brand? Is that kind of maybe where you're going with it? Yeah, absolutely, because I think mm -hmm. uh, it, by empowering your people to do the right thing and create moments mm -hmm. of magic for the customers and then telling those brand legends, for me, is much more powerful than um, capturing a synthetic story, which, which is a sort of stunt that was born out of a marketing department. Yeah, I completely agree. But I think, well, like you point out, or you're certainly alluding to, it's if if you're talking about something which is structural, which is at the heart of the business, it's also a lot harder to 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 replace that and retrofit that kind of structure in place. Does that make sense? So, um, so it's much easier to kind of come up with an outward facing. Uh, per personality or persona or whatever oh, yeah. than to have a good hiring practice yeah. Yeah. and structure your company or restructure your company as they need to as they grow um, to ensure a culture that that does represent the values 
uh, as a company evolves. But I, I completely agree with you. I just think it's a very tricky thing to do, mm. um, especially for larger companies. Yeah, well, it's, it, I guess it, it's harder to do and it takes a, a long time to do if it's going to be done uh, authentically. And, <laughs> and quite often there's more pressure on the marketing department to come up with something straight away. So I guess there's a sort of strain there internally. But yes, yeah. um, go, just going back to more specifics of this sort of web psychology as we sort of start to, to wrap up here, Natalie. Um, do you think some of your theories and, and sort of people and, and behavior, do you think we're empowered by technology or do you still think that technology's got to catch up with some of the some of the, the psychological um, theory that, that you're putting out there? Oh, that's a good question. Well, I think, hmm. <laughs> I think of it in terms of, I'll, I'll give it as an example that, that my dad often used in terms of uh, humanities development. So if you, if you were to throw a bunch of marbles on the floor, say you throw 100 marbles and you look at the spread, you're going to have some marbles that are much, much further ahead and then you'll have a cluster probably somewhere in the middle of wherever you've thrown it and then a few marbles that are closer to you. So that's kind of this spread, if you like, this normative distribution. And what you find with technology and with any kind of trends that, that occur, whether whether that's in fashion or whether that's in adoption of new gear or whatever it might be, is that there are always going to be the people at the front who are pioneering it, who are the early adopters, who are pushing for new things. And then the rest of the tribe, the rest of humanity take a while to catch up. And there'll be a few people at the back who kind of think, well, maybe this isn't good. I'm going to wait till it's really tested or I'm just going to opt out altogether. And I think with technology, what we're finding is that the people at the front um, often stem from cultures that have different values as to what's acceptable and what's not. So if you look at the places where we get a lot of technological innovation, for instance, um, you're looking at places like South Korea, where Samsung comes from and their, their views around privacy. They don't have a sense of privacy in their culture. And so when they export tech to the UK that then is able to snoop in in our homes and has accessible cameras and audio, we see that as, as something that's completely undermining our autonomy. And yet from their cultural perspective, that's not something they have. So it's not an issue in the same way that it is for us. Or you look at, um, you know, San Fran and uh, Palo Alto, and there's a whole different type of culture around that. So what does that like look like? How does that um, inform the way in which the rest of the world are then served by or uh, undermined by our technology? So I think the question really is, um, how, can we, how can we understand how technology is influencing us? How can we understand when it happens in ways that serve us, in ways that don't serve us? And basically kind of looking at it from a perspective of what are my goals? Does this help me reach them? And if not, what can I do about it? And that really, for me, is the, the critical point that we have to, to get to to ask. Yeah, and, and I guess it, following your philosophy, thinking uh, about people, putting people first, I guess then as technology comes along, you can embrace it and apply the philosophy. And it's just how aggressive you are with, with, with staying in, in touch with the technology that's available at the time. I guess. Is, is, that, is that a fair assessment? <laughs> yeah, I think so. And I mean, I think in terms of sort of, uh, sorry, I'm not sure I entirely answered your point. Um, but in terms of the philosophy and the principles being used, you can look at, um, if we're looking at it from a philosophical point of view as of, of empowering people as opposed to undermining them, you know, you know, people are getting wise as to the ways in which our data is being mined, as to the need for encrypted services. So for instance, Signal, um, which is an encrypted, secure messaging iOS app, You've got PQ chat. Um, there are Dropbox alternatives. I think it's called Spider Oak, based out of 
the Nordic countries. I think that one's in Sweden. I'd have to check. But we're finding that there are alternative businesses cropping up to fill um, the demand for this need that we have for alternatives to the technology that's ubiquitous that we all have access to. And I think when you start to see these sorts of demands um, and these sorts of services that are being purchased in, in, in increasing numbers, then it's fair to say that the philosophy of doing of applying these principles in a way that's serving people um, is not being met everywhere and people are looking for alternatives. Yeah. Uh, and so for the mainstream, from my perspective, when I consult with people and companies and speak on the subject, I always try to get the big players to think about it as being a better way to do business um, because it's going to serve them in the long run and it's also going to serve their customers. And if they want to survive, um, then they're going to need to get with the program uh, <laughs> because people are wising up and they should be doing it, if not just for integrity's sake, for the sake of the longevity of their business. Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to touch on before you, before you go, Natalie, um, which is which is really linked to that, and I think people will get a lot of value from. You talk about this really interesting phrase, uh, the behaviour chain, and really, mm. I guess it's about putting all of these things into practice uh, in some sort of strategy to add value to your business, whether it's um, generating leads or, or other types of engagement. Can you just briefly shoot through what the behaviour chain is, and then I can literally hear people's minds blowing as they listen to you to these these concepts so then tell us where we can read more stuff uh, about this um, where, where, where people can find out more about about you essentially okay cool so um the behavior chain was basically a model that was set up by bj fogg who does lots of really interesting stuff um around online behavior around persuasive technology and it's basically how successful web services structure persuasion. So if you're interested in finding out more about that, there's a paper that you can read from the Persuasive Technology Lab um, that was written by BJ Fogg and Dean Eccles, and it's called The Behavior Chain for Online Participation, How Successful Web Services Structure Persuasion. Um, and it's probably, I think the easiest thing is to read through the paper and see what patterns uh, web developers can use to encourage people to get through an entire cycle from, what, from when they arrive on the site to becoming repeat customers. Um, also, another thing that they could look at is uh, Nir Eyal's book called Hooked, which draws from BJ Fogg's behavior chain and others um, to look at how to create habit-forming products, uh, etc. So, yeah, that's where I'd recommend they look for that. Fabulous. Um, Fabulous. Yeah, so in terms of, in terms of wow. getting in touch... Um, I'm on Twitter. You can find me at Natalie Nahai. That's N-A-T-H-A-L-I-E, N-A-H-A-I. And then at The Web Psychologist. And if you're interested in harnessing persuasive technology for good, I'm running a yearly conference. We've just had it. We'll have it again next year in London and hopefully San Francisco. And that's called Humanize the Web. So you're welcome to find that too. Wow. Um, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in two minds whether you've really, really inspired people or just made them feel really inadequate in terms of their website no. and how they think about their audience. Don't feel um, inadequate. Feel no. inspired. Go well, out and change the world. <laughs> well, if you're feeling inspired, please go and check Natalie out and uh, highly recommend reading Webs of Influence um, because, as you've heard, uh, a follow up to that is over a year ago, a, a year to come, so you can't wait that long. Um, and, and check out, uh, sorry, what, what was the, um, the, the seminar again? Oh, so it's a conference called Humanize the Web. Wow, okay. I'll definitely be checking that out. And if, if you're one of those people who feel inadequate right now, you definitely need to read the book and uh, get yourself to that conference. <laughs> Natalie, thank you so much for your time. This has been definitely one of my favorite interviews so far. Thank you for having me.
So that's it for another week. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation. If you did, please feel free to subscribe or even check out our Getting Goosebumps marketing book available in Amazon. If you have any specific questions, you can also tweet us using the hashtag AskPH. I'd be delighted to answer your questions. Until next week, goodbye.